Love that family. You could hear little Charlie, their foster child now adopted, saying amen throughout. What a cute kid. Um, and you could tell that they had sort of a shameless plug for the Cincinnati Bengals. Did you see that? They're different. <laughs> well, we don't have an Ohio team in the playoffs, so let's say go Bengals. They play today. We'll see how we do. Um, yeah, just uh, it's great to be a part of their family. And the chapel would like to do more to come alongside fostering families. Stay tuned on that, all right? I'd like to, along with Pastor Joe, welcome those of you who are watching online from wherever you are and invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. That's where we are in our study. And uh, do that in your Bible or on your phone or whatever you would like. That would be great. Galatians, uh, we call it choosing freedom every day. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformationist, he um, called the book of Galatians, which transformed his life, the, the Magna Carta of the Christian life. And he called it that because it gives true freedom to those who trust in Christ. And we're going to be looking at Galatians in just a moment. Uh, but I want to give you a little quiz. Um, and I'm going to show some movies on the screen. I'm going to ask you this. Uh, what is the common um, setting that exists between these movies? Here we go. Ready? Back to the Future. Mrs. Doubtfire, Legally Blonde, Christmas Vacation, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Elf, and last, going way back, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Not just these movies, there are so many movies, some, some of which I don't really want to mention here, but there are so many movies that have a common setting, and it is a dinner table scene at which Something funny happens, it's humorous, but also in some cases, incredibly intense and awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, you know, if you look through the Bible, you'll find a variety of table, uh, dinner table settings. But the passage we're looking at today, it is, it's made for a movie. Where we're going to be is Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21, if you want to turn there. All right? Um, why is it made for a movie? Because of its intensity. You'll see in a moment. Two titans of the Christian faith, of the early church, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, the disciple who followed Jesus, walked with Jesus, uh, are sitting at the same dinner table. And Paul spots an elephant in the room and decides to call it out. And that elephant in the room is Peter. <laughs> Awkward, uncomfortable. What has Peter done? By his actions, he is threatening the unity of the church. And Paul will not have any of that. And so, what I'd like to do is to walk us through this passage, make some observations along the way, and then arrive in the spirit of Galatians, the book of freedom, arrive at some freedom principles by which we can and should live. So let's start with the passage and try to understand what's going on, and then we'll get to those principles. It starts like this, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. You can tell the tension's already there. Peter was down in Jerusalem. That's where his headquarters was. Jewish heritage, as was Paul, Jewish heritage, came up to Antioch, the third largest city in the world at that time, Rome and Alexandria, and then Antioch. And Antioch is where the Gentile church began to blossom and grow and even send out missionaries. A Gentile, just to remind you, is a non-Jew. A Gentile didn't care about or know about the Mosaic law. The Jews did. 
And Peter comes to visit Paul and Barnabas at the church in Antioch. Let's continue. When he first arrived, when Peter first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. Let's just get that out of the way. We won't talk a lot about it, but circumcision was one of the Mosaic laws, and it was sort of an indicator that you really took the Mosaic law seriously. But Peter, if you remember our study in the book of Acts this past summer, in chapter 10, Peter had a dream from God, and then he went to visit a Gentile named Cornelius. And from all of that, summarizing, Peter learned that a person is made right with God, not through the Mosaic law, but simply through faith in Jesus. And so now Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles who don't care or know about the Mosaic law, can sit at the same table with Jewish believers who did care about the law because they all had faith in Jesus and Jesus was enough so they could sit at the same table. So Peter comes to Antioch. He's sitting with the Gentiles. And now in these next words, you can tell Paul is a little hot under the collar. It goes like this. When he first arrived, he ate, Peter ate, with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, half-brother of Jesus. He eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem of Jewish heritage. Peter was of Jewish heritage. Paul was also. And then these men from James came. Whether James sent them or not, we really don't know. They acted like James sent them. They had authority. And Paul calls them what? The Judaizers. And what did a Judaizer do? Well, these were guys who believed in Jesus, but they also believed that to be made right with God, it's not just belief in Jesus, you also had to keep the Mosaic law. And so Peter sees them. He's eating bacon with the Gentiles and other non-kosher foods, right? He sees them and he becomes afraid. And now, rather than sitting at one table, it feels like they are at two tables, There are the Gentile believers over here and the the Jewish believers over here who have a higher, better view of themselves because they keep the Mosaic law. Well, that just leads to trouble. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Twice we read the word hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It's saying you believe one thing, saying one thing, and doing another. Another in hypocrisy never leads anywhere that's good. Barnabas, Paul's best friend and partner in ministry, is led astray because of this. So you can feel now there is division. And Paul is watching this and he says to himself, I gotta say something. I gotta say something. I gotta call out the elephant in the room. And this is how it goes. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Some versions of the Bible start like this. When I saw that they were not in line with the truth of the gospel message, not in line with Paul uses a Greek prefix, ortho. Maybe you've been to an orthodontist to make your teeth straight or to an orthopedic surgeon to make your bones straight, ortho. It's straight. It's a straight line. And what Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, you are not acting in alignment with the true message of the gospel. Peter, you have made things crooked 
You have made things complicated. You have made these Gentiles who were led to believe that faith in Jesus was all they needed, and now you're making them feel like they need something more. Peter, Jesus is enough. That is our message. But you have divided, and now it feels like we are at two separate tables. So, Peter and Judaizers, may I remind you of what the true gospel message is. And this is what Peter says. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. I'm sure he said that tongue-in-cheek because Paul knew that all of us were sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But he goes on, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Uh, Maybe I told you this story before, I forget, but but a number of years ago, my wife and I were with uh, some friends. It was was, was, uh, at the end of the year, the, the clock was about ready to start midnight, and the new year was about ready to begin. And I said, them, said to them, with just a few minutes to go, when the, when the clock strikes midnight and the new year begins, I am going to start this new year and live this new year perfectly. I'm going to think perfectly. I'm going to speak perfectly. I'm going to do perfectly. I am going to live the perfect life. I said that tongue-in-cheek because I wondered how far I would get. We said the, the clock struck midnight. We said goodnight, got in the car, and I started to drive home and looked down and realized I was going about 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Rats, foiled. I could not do it. I heard a quote recently. I love this. If you want to know how flawed you are, then try to be, try, just try to be really, really good, and you'll see. And so what Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, in the Mosaic Law, there are 613 laws. You and me and none of our ancestors have ever been able to come close to keeping all of those laws. We are all flawed completely. So, if we can't keep those laws, Peter, why would you want to put that burden on these Gentiles, these non-Jews? Because, Peter, you know, the Mosaic Law was never intended to save us. It was intended to put, point us toward our need for a Savior. And Peter, that Savior has come from God in the person of Jesus Christ. And our united message is we put our faith in Jesus alone. Jesus is enough. We don't add anything to it. Now at this point, in the next few verses, it's a little complicated, so what I'd like to do is just summarize for you what Paul says, what he writes in this passage. Paul anticipates some pushback from these Judaizers. Pushback like, Paul, you say you are no longer a Mosaic law, rule-keeping kind of guy. Well, that's going to get you in trouble, and you are going to become even more of a sinner than you already are. But Paul's response is, no, on the contrary. I realized that I could never save myself. I needed a Savior. My Savior is Jesus Christ. I put my faith in him, and now he comes to live within me. Which is exactly where this dinner table conversation ends with these words. My old self, Paul writes, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ 
lives in me, so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. And Paul says, Christ did not die for nothing. He took my sin and the guilt of my sin and all of my efforts to save myself onto himself. And when I put my faith in Jesus, Christ came to live within me. And that's the Holy Spirit. You say, Holy Spirit? Where did that come from? Well, he hasn't talked about the Holy Spirit yet, but you watch chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. We're going to learn more about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives as the Spirit of Christ that comes to live within somebody who puts their faith in Jesus. That is the end of the passage. Tension, awkward, uncomfortable. Paul calls somebody else because they were dividing the church by not listening to the simple message of Christ that Jesus is enough. Now, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is to, uh, is to identify some, some freedom principles by which we can and we should live. And I, I'm grateful to J.D. Greer for uh, some of the wording on this. Um, we are freed to unite. We are free to confront. We are free to really live. Let's focus on the first one, free to unite. We'll spend most of our time here because that really is at the core of this passage. Um, We mentioned this last week, and it's still on people's minds, but when that thing happened uh, a couple weeks ago, Monday Night Football, when the Buffalo Bills and the Bengals, and they play again today, but a couple weeks ago when DeMar Hamlin had that cardiac arrest on the field, maybe you saw it, it was terrible. Just talked to a guy the other day who was at the game, and a horrible thing, but but at the start of the game, there were the, the, the Buffalo Bills on one side of the field in their uniforms, and there were the Cincinnati Bengals in their uniforms on this side of the field. And then about five and a half minutes into the game, when that happened to Damara Hamlin, those players were on the field together, mingled together, praying together, and all of a sudden their uniforms didn't matter. They were just football players, men who were concerned about the same thing. And Paul is saying to Peter and to these Judaizers, look, there may be people with a non-Jewish heritage, the Gentiles, and there may be those with a Jewish heritage, but together as we put our faith in Christ, we are united now on the same field at the same table. Um, for, for, For the Jews... For the Judaizers, the Mosaic Law was a dividing point for them. For us in this room, we don't talk about the Mosaic Law. That's not a threat. That's not a dividing point for us. But the reality is wherever we have freedom, it's in danger of being lost. We We are free to unite, but we need to be careful that we maintain that unity as a church. Um, maybe you know the name Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor, writer uh, from the 1800s in Great Britain, great thinker. But he said, you know, in the church, we need to be careful. There are three forms of pride that can destroy unity. I want to cover those with you just briefly to show you the danger to our freedom to unite, which is really at the core of this passage, unity. The first one Spurgeon talks about is the pride of race. Um, one of the reasons I really enjoy taking 
uh, teams and sending teams to different places in the world is because of the exposure we get to different cultures. In fact, I'll put a shameless plug on the screen here. This is where we're going this year, and we have a card at the Welcome Center. If any of these interest you, uh, perhaps you would like to visit one of those places. But here's the thing what I want to say. is when you, come, when you get to these places, you, spe- you see people of different skin color, different language, different customs, different nationality, and so on and so on and so on. But we realize that we are all together under the lordship of Christ. We are kingdom people, not Burundian people, not Indian people, not American people. We are kingdom people. And and Jesus, when he came, he did not come to make Burundians Americans or make Indians Americans or, or to make black people white or white people black or to make Native Americans any other culture. Not at all. Jesus came to make us right with God simply by putting our faith in him. So that's when Paul writes, like in the book of Romans, which is a companion book to the, to the book of Galatians, in chapter 10, there is no longer any Jew or Gentile. We are one in Christ. In just a little while, in the book of Galatians, as we get into chapter, the end of chapter 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There's neither, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. We are united. Let's remember that. And then Spurgeon goes on to say there's also the danger of the pride of face and place. What is that about? Earlier I was talking about movies. Here's a movie for you. Don't watch it. It's called Zoolander. But it's just a, it's a goofy movie. And it's a, the, the key character in the movie is Derek Zoolander. And he's a male model. And he refers to himself as ridiculously good looking. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're ridiculously good looking. That's your opinion. We'll tell you later. But, but maybe, maybe you're ridiculously athletic, or maybe you're ridiculously successful, or maybe you're ridiculously wealthy, or maybe you live in a ridiculously awesome place. That's, that's good. Let's just remember that all good things come from God, and all, all things belong to God. Let me ask you this question. Where do your genes come from? Yes, from your parents, but ultimately from God. And who put the air in your lungs, and who put the, the blood in your veins, and who gives you the strength to get out of bed every day? And who gave you the privilege to live in America and not in the poorest country in the world, Burundi? And who has, who has offered you the gift of a relationship with God to be made right with God except through Jesus Christ? God gave us that. So we must never be so prideful to think that we are something special. We are united in the name of Jesus alone. And then Spurgeon goes on to say there's also the, the, the pride of grace that can threaten unity. Again, I'm spending more time on unity because this is really at the core of this passage. What is this? The pride of grace. Some of us in this room have lived squeaky clean lives. You lived a a morally good life. You've made good decisions. You know what I mean. And your name has never shown up in the police blotter. Thank goodness. Give thanks to God for that. He has preserved you from some difficult things. But let's remember, that's that's a gift from God too. And and there are people who have made terrible decisions, foolish decisions, have made reckless decisions over their lives. 
And yet somehow, they and you have come to an understanding that we cannot save ourselves. And we need a Savior. I, I once read this quote, all, all sin is not equally bad, but all sin is equally wrong. And that makes us all falling short of God's perfect standard in need of a Savior. And so we stand on level ground before the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So, let's not let our various prides ruin the unity that we might have, which was exactly the danger that Paul experienced at his dinner table setting. Now, there's another freedom we have besides the freedom to unite. It's the freedom to confront. Maybe you anticipated that one. Man, Paul took some bold, strong steps to do that to Peter, one of Jesus' best friends. Wow, I would like to have been there. It's made for a movie. I was reading a book recently, and Winston Churchill was quoted. And Churchill once said, you know, you'll never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every barking dog. Now, that's a great line for anybody in leadership. But here Paul stops to throw stones at barking dogs, and they are the Judaizers. Why does he do that? Because they are ruining the unity of the church. And, and Paul understood. He understood the wisdom in confrontation, in rebuking, in calling people out. He knew things like this from the book of Proverbs. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Sometimes you just have to say the hard thing because it is the is the right thing to say. Jeff Foxworthy, do you know the, the name, the comedian? He's known for this shtick, you know, uh, um, you know you're a redneck if, and then he finishes the sentence, like, you know you're a redneck if you think the stock market has a fence around it. Something like that. That's really funny. I just, that was my only joke for the day. But let me, let me, let me, let me throw this in here. You know, you know you need to be confronted or you know you need to confront somebody if you sense that unity in the church is being threatened. If there's any air of superiority in the room, if there's any tone of racism, prejudice, or bigotry, if there are any off-color jokes related to that, if anybody is saying that the gospel message is Jesus plus this, if you hear anything that suggests that Jesus is not enough, then it is time to confront. Paul, in, in uh, his letter to the Ephesians, in fact, when my wife and I were uh, planning to get married, our pre-marriage counseling was focused around Ephesians chapter 4. There the theme is unity. And Paul writes in there, if you want unity, you better learn how to speak the truth in love, which my wife learned well. You've you got to learn how to confront. I tell people she has the gift of clarity. Um, and, and take a look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. There he's writing to a divided church, and he's trying to bring, bring them back to the centrality of the gospel message, Jesus is enough and nothing else. And some of us here in this room, you were raised in a church where you were made to think that you need to do this and this and this to be made right with God. That's untrue. But what do we read in the Bible? Jesus is enough. Let's go on. Last one. We are free to really live. 
the church where I once uh, pastored, we had a ministry for young adults called Real Life. What does that mean, real life? What does it mean to really live? I think it means to allow God to, to have his way in our lives because he made us and he knows what's best for us. I think it'll, it means allowing Christ to be at the helm of our lives. And that's really how Paul finishes with some of these last words in this passage again my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I walk around this earth in this body. But now, because I have turned to Jesus by faith, God now has invested himself in me. God has joined his life with mine by Christ, by his spirit, living within me. I put my faith in Jesus 20 years ago. Do I still sin? You bet I do. But now I have a higher purpose for living and to keep following Christ. What, what, what is our impetus for following Jesus? Let me end with this quote from Tim Keller, which, which helps us understand why we would ever want to allow Christ to be at the, in our lives and the lead of our lives. It goes like this. Imagine that your house was burning down, but your whole family had escaped, and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you and ran into the house and died. What a tragic, pointless waste of life, you would think, you would probably think. Now, but now imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there, and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you, ran into the flames and saved your child, but perished myself. You would think, look how much that man loved us. That's a great story. And, and Keller goes on to say, if you think you could save yourself, then the death of Jesus is pointless, meaningless. But if you are certain that you could never make yourself right with God, and never save yourself, then the death of Jesus is everything. And because it's everything, now I want to pattern my life and organize my life in a way that I will, will look for opportunities to honor God. And I will look for opportunities to serve Jesus Christ because he is the one who rescued me. So, here, here we are, in this room, imagine us gathered around one table, right? One table. We are freed to unite. Let's hold on to that. What is our uniting message? Jesus is enough. I put my faith in Jesus, and that's it. And we are free to confront. When we get off onto something else, it's okay, because we speak the truth in love and we bring back each other to what is true. And then we are freed to really live. And between this day and the day when Jesus comes again, for those who have put their faith in Jesus, he lives within us. And each day we get up and walk around this body certain that God lives in us by his Spirit. More on the Spirit next week. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and um, the story in, this, in the book of Galatians. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ simply because of faith in Jesus. Help us to hold true to that individually.
but also as a church. Let that be our message, simple and clear. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.